0: I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs, but how do you explain them to your customers?
1: Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup.
0: So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds?
1: Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio.
2: Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.
0: This is Lars. Thanks again for checking out my podcast. Enjoy your day and the show, and let's make America great again.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. You know, if somebody said to you, third world country, you would generally think of starving people, people living in squalor and dirt. What are the economic problems we're facing putting America into that category? Our good friend, great friend of the show, Bob Barr, former CIA analyst and former member of Congress, joins me now. Bob, how are you?
4: Lars, I'm doing fine, thank you.
0: America hasn't yet taken on the status of a third world country and maybe we will never formally get there. But you've suggested that Americans are facing some of the same kinds of problems that we previously would have associated with real third world countries where the lights don't stay turned on all the time, there are shortages of fuel oil or heating oil or gasoline and things like that. How in the world do we get to this point?
4: Well, we got here because uh, for, I guess, probably two, if not three generations now, as people simply have not been paying attention to what's going on in the country they have been turning more and more to government to give them things and to solve every one of our problems so government has gotten so big and people haven't paid attention to it so we have some of those indices of a third world country we have food shortages rationing of uh, fuel uh, we have corruption in government but The problem that I see in our country, Lars, is is worse than being a third world country. We are turning into a country with no civic responsibility, no, no civic pride, no, no civic. It's just it's hard to put into words, but where you have people committing random acts of violence on a regular basis uh, and you have no way to really ensure that. Prosecutions take place; that justice is done. That's really, in some respects, Lars, worse than living in a third-world, economically deprived country.
0: It sounds like you're living with a Democrat. You know, one of those people who's always making a lot of noise, sleeps most of the day, eats, and doesn't actually produce anything of of, of actual marketable value. Uh, I've got one too, but he doesn't. But he, but he loves me. He he does love you, and and I know my dog loves me, and and I love dogs, but. Uh, No, this is part of the problem is that everyone has decided that he or she or they, as they're calling them now, uh, are are victims and that that therefore the rest of society owes them. And so instead of saying, why, there's great opportunity here. And the sad thing is, Bob, I think. People arrive in this country from really terrible countries on planet Earth, and they look around America and say there's opportunity everywhere, and many of them become very successful. They start businesses. These are the, the true immigrants, the ones who come here legally. The ones who've grown up here say, why, there's nothing here. I need to figure out a way to make everybody else pay my bills and do for me. And, and I, I just don't know what the mechanism is to get people back to seeing the same opportunity here that's seen through the eyes of a brand new immigrant from some real lousy country on planet Earth.
4: It it sort of has turned the whole historic model upside down. I mean, I recall, it's a little bit before your time, but I recall when when Castro took over uh, Cuba in his communist revolution in 1959, 1960, we had a huge influx of Cubans who came to this country They were doctors, they were lawyers, they were business people, Uh, and they set up shop here in America. And to this day, their kids and grandkids have the work ethic that we always used to associate with America. And then in the 1970s, with the so-called boat people coming from uh, South Vietnam as the communists uh, took over South Vietnam, They came over here. They started businesses. They respected this country. They understood our values better than a lot of young Americans do. And yet here we are in the 2020s, and we have young people in this country that don't want to work. They simply want government to do things for them. As you say, they all feel victimized. And this is a country now in which we are on a downward slope without any sort of civic responsibility, without any, and that, that work ethic. And I don't know where it's going to lead us, but it doesn't look good.
0: You know, Bob, uh, about 40 years ago, and I know I'm dating myself just like you date yourself, but I just want people to hear this. 40 years ago, I talked to this guy, I found out about him. Somebody had called me and said, hey, you got to talk to this guy. And I went and interviewed him. He was Vietnamese from South Vietnam, and I said, "When you came out of Vietnam, what'd you have?" He said uh, he had been a doctor. He'd been a colonel in in their military in the South Vietnamese uh, uh, military, uh, and he had to get out ahead of the communists when they took over. And um, I said, "What'd you have?" He said, "I had a flight suit and a helmet." He says, "That's all I had," and and he got out and he came here and he del- and here is a guy who had been a colonel. He'd been a uh, He'd been a medical doctor in Vietnam. That, those didn't translate through to here. So he took a job as a prison guard a, in the state prison. And he deliberately took the night shift. I said, why'd you take the night shift? He said, because I wanted to start a business. And if I worked, you know, from midnight to 8 a.m., then I could leave at 8 a.m. and not go home and go to bed. I could go out and work my business, which he was doing. They made spring rolls, you know, these little fried things that, you know, they put vegetables and meat in a little piece of right. dough, and then they... they And and I said, how many people do you have working for you now? He says he's had fifty employees. (laughs) I said, do you? And and he said, so of course you've got a successful business now. You've quit the job at the prison. He goes, oh no, I still work the job at the prison, and I run my business, and I employ fifty people. No kidding. And and I make six figures. And I remember thinking, most people would say, once they got the job, they'd say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the easy path. I'll take the job and the state pension and the nice paycheck. And and why do I need a business? But he started a business, but he kept working the job at the prison. And I thought, you know, that's and, and this isn't some guy who said, well, I was a doctor. I was a colonel. You know, I I need a job of my stature in this new country. He just looked and said, there's the opportunity. And he didn't just create a job for himself. He created a job for 50 other people.
4: That's that's really what the liberals don't understand. And that is, if you have somebody and you empower them to start a business, They bring others on board. They hire other people. Uh, Liberals don't understand that, or they simply refuse to accept it and make it more and more difficult to start and run a business in this country.
0: And you know what? For all the talk about equity and all this nonsense, Bob, and it is nonsense, this man also said, I said, I noticed that everybody, I'd walked through his little, you know, factory where they make the spring rolls. I said, everybody who works here is Vietnamese. He goes, yeah. He says, I help out my own people. Now, of course, Uh, You know, technically, what he was doing by deliberately hiring other Vietnamese people, he wasn't taking advantage of them. He said, these people need opportunity. I'm going to give it to them, And he wasn't doing it to to advantage himself. But if you said, all I'm going to hire is Vietnamese people, you would say, well, you can't do that legally. The laws require you to, you know, hire, you know, this broad spend today. They say, well, your your workforce has to reflect the community. He didn't pay any attention to that. He said, you know, these people need opportunity. I know where they're coming from. They're going to work for me. Bob, it's always a pleasure to have you on board. And and I, again, there are some of those stories that just stick in your head. And I appreciate your point. I don't want us to be a third world country, but that is Bob Barr, former CIA analyst and former member of Congress and a good friend of this show. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend, Aaron Mesh who is the news editor for Willamette Week, and I disagree with him all the time, but on this one, I think we're going to agree. Aaron, welcome back to the program. Good to be here. So you've got this story where you took a look at a really, uh, an ugly crime, an assault on a man and his family visiting Portland, visitors from overseas. Um, Lucas Manfield wrote the story, we'll give him credit. And the question was, why is a guy who's accused of a Class C felony assault on a man and his ch- and his family and his child Uh, why is the person who's accused of that crime almost immediately released and not even released by a judge but by what do they call the person release assistance officer a row
5: yeah although i mean essentially what it boils down to is a clerk right so like the the release assistance officer doesn't make any real decisions the release assistance officer just looks at the checklist and says does this person need to stay behind bars overnight or does this person get to walk and you know we spent I, i found this this, the release of this man uh, after he attacked a family of Japanese descent on the East Bank Esplanade, hit the father of the family in the head 50 times, uh, punched a five-year-old girl uh, while screaming racial slurs, uh, made me outraged by the crime itself, but also outraged by the idea that this guy could, could walk away from the jail hours later and then be missing for three days, not show up to court deeply predictably, and then be the subject of a manhunt for 12 hours or so. I just found all that like puzzling and also uh, pretty disturbing. And the, there was no clear explanation, I felt, from the, from the local officials in the Multnomah County criminal justice system. Uh, although the answer turns out to not be that complicated.
0: No, because one of the senior judges, what's her name, Martha something or other, uh, basically said, if you're accused of, of this kind of crime, then then we cut you loose and we we trust you to show up. Martha Walters, Oregon Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, right of the state Supreme Court, yeah, said,
5: Although, although I would say that some of the, some of the responsibility here actually goes to a to a judge named Mazarato, who's uh, who's Portland based, because each county decides which exact crimes are going to qualify for uh, for. Over, overnight stay or from protocol here's,
0: hold. Okay, now, I, so, I, in, some, so, in some, go ahead. So the
5: short version of this is that a felony bias crime, in other words, a hate crime, uh, unless there's some other charge appended to it, and in this case there were, I believe, three counts of felony hate crime, that's not going to keep you in jail overnight in Portland, Oregon.
0: See, now, Aaron, here's, I, I was, out, I'm outraged when people do things like this. But what I'm really outraged by is it took a bias crime to get the city and everybody else to say, oh, my God, we can't let this happen. When it happens to anybody else, when somebody else suffers a class, you know, that level of assault, they get no attention to it at all. And people have been complaining about that for a while. So there's a little bit of hypocrisy in saying we don't care when you just do it to anybody else. But if it involves a bias crime, then all of a sudden we've got to raise a stink about it. Do you you get what I'm saying? I get what you're saying, and and to some extent, I see your point. Like,
5: look, there's like I'll I'll put it this way: there is a tension and a friction now for a lot of progressives in Portland who believed that their efforts to reduce the amount of people who were staying in jail were a godly and and righteous cause. And then all of a sudden, the result of that is that somebody can get away with attacking a a family of Japanese descent on the waterfront and screaming racist slurs at them. It turns out that there are consequences to some of these decisions and that uh, choosing only the rights of the defendant will have an impact on victims.
0: Well, and, and see, this is where the problem is. If you want to get rid of a bad rule, strictly enforce it. So when the rest of the city is told, if you're, say, Aaron Mesh, white, straight guy, with a decent job and a place to live, unlike this homeless, unemployed bit bum who beat up on this family. Uh, we don't give a damn if it happens to you. Well, OK, if you don't give a damn, it's more important to you to cut criminals loose. Go ahead and start doing it. But you have to take the consequences and own them. And that ownership goes to liberal, you know, the Wokey, uh, Portland and Oregon voters who said this is what we want. We want criminals released. Uh, you can't say. In, except- in, in fairness to Wokey, Portland voters, they didn't vote for this.
5: This isn't a. This was not a. This was not a ballot measure. This well, is they voted by, for the personnel
0: electors. who made the decision, right?
5: Sure, but I, but you know, and I know that very few voters actually consider the question of what individual policies are going to result from their votes. That happens on both sides of the, of the electorate. See, I think like, a lot
0: of, a <laughs> lot of my listeners think about all the consequences. This is why we're particular about members of Congress or members of the legislature who don't do what they're saying they're going to do. If I vote for you you're going to go ahead and do bad things again. I'm not voting for you. We do go down to that level. The Wokies just say, oh, you can't lock as many people up in jail, so make the rules so most criminals get released. Okay, but you have to live well, with the Lars, consequences. I would, I, would,
5: I would argue back that as the editor of a progressive newspaper, I just spent 1,400 words looking at the consequences of who we elected. So we can both play that game.
0: Okay, and, and all I'm saying is that Over the last three decades or so, the people who've been put in positions of power on the bench as judges in the legislature, writing laws and running the cities and directing the uh, police department, electing DAs, you know, all of those people were voted for. And many of them, we said, this is the kind of person this is. These are the kind of policies they're going to support. If you if you elect this guy or this woman, then this is what they're going to do. And they said, yep. And that's why we're voting for him. OK, live with the consequences then, right? Well, I think that, it's very, I think that general, general
5: outlines here, I think that it is true that Portland voters have supported criminal justice reforms that make it harder to keep people behind bars. There has been a de-incarceration movement that the city has fully embraced. Good. Now they're living with it, are, Right. And I think you're seeing the consequences of that and 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 whether or not whether or not they can live with it.
0: Well, but see, they had. And here's where there's inherent. You want to talk about racism and bias again? I'll state it this way, Aaron. If they did it to a white straight guy like you, those voters don't give a damn. On the other hand, if they do it to somebody who's gay or trans or a person of color, then they're like, oh, this is outrageous. Well, you can't have it both ways and say it's okay to beat up on white straight guys like Aaron or Lars. But it's not okay if you do it to people of color or people in some other special minority. They get special protections. You don't get to choose it that way. America's Constitution says we all, in theory, get equal justice under the law, right? I guess I guess
5: my only objection here would be that as a straight white male, I have never really felt like the criminal justice system fails to take my uh, my life serious. I, I think you
0: are being naive. I think I'm pretty good at working with lawyers. I, I think, no, but here's the problem, Aaron. I'll tell you what, you get involved in a scuffle uh, and, and you fight back and you hurt the guy who attacked you. Do you know what's going to happen to you as a straight white guy? They're going to run you up the flagpole. And you're going to be you're going to be you're, you're going to get beaten. You're going to get legally beaten to, to, to pieces by the system. On the other hand, if you're part of a special group, you'll get special consideration, even if you were the bad guy. And that that isn't I, right. I, just, I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I agree with that. I, ask I have Mike sneaky, Strickland.
5: I have a I have a sneaky, ask. Well, ask Mike, Mike, Strickland. Yeah, Mike Strickland. All right. All um, right. I'm sure I could. He's in my comment section 14 hours a day.
0: (laughs) Aaron, we're going to have everybody read the story. And look at this. Do the Wokies want to live with the results of the policies they push or do they want special rules for special groups? Back in just a moment. It's the Radio Northwest Network. Your calls are welcome at 866-439-5277. It's the Lars Larson Show.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Pleasure to be with you. It's the Radio Northwest Network. And on the phone with me right now is Bruce Gilly. We talked to Bruce just a couple of months ago. He's a professor of political science at the Marco Hatfield School of Government at Portland State University and author of the new book called In Defense of German Colonialism and how its critics empowered the Nazis, the communists, and the enemies of the West. Bruce, welcome back.
6: Hey, Lars. It's great to be here.
0: Now you reflect, you wrote a piece with The Wall Street Journal yesterday, and I was really impressed by it because you talked about how lucky it is to have an all-girls Catholic school located in the middle of Portlandia in the middle of all this liberalism, and that, that you were, your family was fortunate because your, your daughter was able to go to school there, and she's now left St. Mary's Academy. But you're also troubled by the direction that even a conservative school like that would be going. Would you mind describing to my audience what brought about your disquiet?
6: Well, I think uh, like most parents, uh, and I don't think even, only conservative parents, but most parents have been concerned about the direction that schools in general have taken, K-12 schools in general have taken uh, over the last 10 years, where instruction and excellence in reading, writing, arithmetic has increasingly taken a back seat to pronouns and climate hysteria. And, you know, we think this is just in the public schools, but St. Mary's, it's the all-girls Catholic school, um, unfortunately, has been just as vulnerable to this. Um, and I try and sort of outline in my in my essay, you know, the problems this creates for our, for our girls, for our daughters, um, in terms of creating uh, a sense of fulfillment and meaning in their lives going forward. If they're not uh, at the barricades uh, denouncing the patriarchy, then they're going to feel they're somehow inadequate. And this is basically just setting up our our girls for failure. Yeah,
0: I I think you're right about that. So how does that stuff creep into a school like St. Mary's? Why do you suppose they're willing to entertain that stuff?
6: Well, uh, Catholics at St. Mary's are in a minority. Uh, indeed, I think probably people of faith in St. Mary's are in a minority. It'll be coming as a surprise to many people. But, you know, Catholic schools across the country have had this kind of uh, this devil's bargain put before them. You can have bulging finances and spiritual deterioration, or you can cling to your values and you might struggle to keep the lights on. And most of them, not surprisingly, have gone with the former. St. Mary's is no different. And, of course, right in the heart of Portlandia, what it means is that those non-Catholic and even, uh, e- even sort of um, far liberal families are increasingly driving the direction of the school. And they're doing
0: it to follow the dollars. Well,
6: yeah, because that's where the money is, right? I mean, I mean, we're talking uh, a, a city where, uh, you know, the elites are obviously liberal and they're in law and they're in government and advertising, and I guess they're in uh, female professional soccer now, and uh, basically that's where the money is. And, you know, you can't, you can't have uh, a parents who are of that uh, inclination as your parents, in a school and not have that affect your, your core mission.
0: I thought the part that really got my attention, especially in the piece you wrote for the wall street journal, you said your extended family has become a lot of different things, doctors, engineers, attorneys, investors, and, and that sort of thing. But the list of things that they suggested as possible future careers for your daughter, now a graduate of St. Mary's were what?
6: Yes. Social activist, uh, and, um, STEM advocate and bridger of equity gaps right. <laughs> were the kind of the, the, the career professions open to girls now, according to St. Mary's.
0: So they want her to be a global citizen or an environmental champion or a politician. I mean, so an activist just to, to go out and, and, and as opposed to actually doing things like what engineers might do, go out and, and just be an activist.
6: Yeah. And, and you know, as I say, there's there's nothing wrong with going and being an activist or a politician or, a, or whatever you want to do. The, the point is you know that, that girls, as with boys, should be introduced to a variety of things they can do with their lives, some of which may involve change agents, some of which will be defenders of tradition, some of which will be caregivers, some of which will be in service to the country or in, in service to, to your church. I mean, there's a lot of things that we need to valorize that are being totally devalued by these kind of social justice academies well
0: and in fact uh we were just talking earlier about the departure of uh, tulsi gabbard from the democrat party and she says look you know this party has become you know ag- against white people against faith against all these things can we at least expect some of the faith-based institutions like a catholic school to be in favor of encouraging people to be defenders of the faith
6: yeah, unfortunately, I, I, it, it's a battle. I'll say this large; it's not lost. I mean, I would say the public schools are lost and just need to be written off. The Catholic schools are not lost. Uh, there's a very strong conversation going on. I'm not a Catholic myself, but I'm not either. Uh, but but I but I, I I love the Catholic Church and I and I was so grateful to have my my children in those schools. Uh, so it's not lost. That conversation is robust in the Catholic schools. But if it's lost in the Catholic schools, it's lost for society as a whole.
0: Well, and do you, do you think that here in the Pacific Northwest we might ever see um, schools uh, changes in the law to allow parents to have the kind of latitude they now do in Arizona, where when you say, look, the public schools aren't doing it for my kids, so I want to take the resources that society ad, uh, you know allocates for for education of kids. I don't want to take them somewhere else because right now, I I would not put money on a bet that said you can get a bill like that passed in either Olympia, Boise or in Salem.
6: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the irony, of course, of all these woke parents at St. Mary's is they're all big defenders of equity and preventing poor and disadvantaged kids from escaping from public schools as they have with their children. Uh, and maybe, indeed, that would precisely be the fix because it would create a little bit of parental choice over the sorts of schools they send their kids to. And, you know, frankly, uh, you know, my daughter is going to be fine. But but I do worry about uh, kids who, who don't have a strong family, who don't maybe have a, a lot of educational norms in their families, who don't have role models around. And, and they're the ones who are being just just wiped out by what's happening in the public system. Um, and now it's creeping into the into the Christian and the and the parochial schools as well. I'm talking to Bruce Kelly, who's a professor at
0: PSU, and I imagine as a conservative, he has some interesting conversations. He's also the author of "In Defense of German Colonialism," because I remember that 20 years ago in Washington D.C., they offered up to parents, "Hey, we'll give you a small amount of money, a couple of thousand bucks. You have to put some money with it, put your kids in private schools." And they said, "Well, that's fine. That's for rich people." No, there were it was it was allocated to poor people, and and thousands, oh, oh, oh. so many of them turned out for that program that they literally ran out of funding for it because there were so many poor families that said, we'll we'll come up with a couple of grand uh, along with a couple of grand we're getting in subsidy, and we'll move our kids to a private school. They were hungry
6: for it, and that was 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, school choice is such an uh, uh, non-debatable issue win for all parties. It's a win for the taxpayer. It's a win for the students. It's a win for the parents. It's it's a win for the economy. The only one it's not a win for is the teachers union. And that's why you will see those teachers unions throwing money left and right at Democratic politicians in all our elections. That's the big stumbling block to unlocking this most important of policies in terms of helping people who need the help.
0: Well sadly professor you know that when when you talk to people on the left about choice they they only think you're talking about killing babies. They don't think there should be choice in anything else. And in fact if they they think if you speak against or in favor of choice that they're going to see if they can get you canceled out. Great piece in the Wall Street Journal. Congratulations on that and congratulations on the book on journal German colonialism. We always appreciate your time professor. Great, it's nice to talk again. Thank you, sir. That's Professor Bruce Gilley, Professor of Political Science at the Marco Hatfield School of Government. So if you think some of those public universities, and PSU is one of those, are only filled with liberals, well, some of the professors might actually surprise you. Coming up, we'll get to your phone calls and emails. And the Northwest comes up with some new names for new crimes. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. Always glad to get your calls as well. If you want to dial into the best conversation and talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. And naysayers, you go right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. And that's not an empty promise. If you call the show and you tell the producers when they answer, uh, I want to tell Lars that he's wrong. They'll say, "Why? you're going to be a naysayer. You'll go right to the head of the line. Just come prepared with your best argument. Tell me where we disagree. And then I'll allow you to make your argument. And uh, and then I want to ask a few questions and see if I can poke a couple holes in that argument. Our Twitter poll today, would you carry a credit or debit card that tracks your carbon footprint? It's now being offered to Visa credit card holders through a Vancouver, Canada, uh, it's a save, or a credit union. And what they do is they say, we will track all of your purchases and then tell you the carbon footprint of those purchases. I guess this is for people who are hyper concerned about their effect on global warming or climate change or whatever they're calling it this week. I would say no to that idea. I think it's kind of goofy, but for the people who want to be goofy, go ahead. I would say no uh, to the question itself, though. You can find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call AAA 262 2006 AMAC's better. Better for you and better for America. Now, I'll tell you something that really got under my skin. And it was a comment from supreme court justice sonia sotomayor now every once in a while i'll find myself agreeing with her about a decision that she's made but this one has to go to a piece of personal philosophy and here's the comment she made it was reported on by the hill.com she said that her fellow justice clarence thomas who happens to be my favorite uh member of the u.s supreme court certainly wouldn't be john roberts the uh the chief justice because he's disappointed us severely a number of times but clarence Thomas. I can't remember a single time that I've ever disagreed seriously with Clarence Thomas. But she says that her fellow Justice Thomas cares about legal issues differently than me. She's speaking of herself, adding that she thinks not everyone can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Now, at the risk of quoting a president that I don't particularly care for anymore, and that is George W. Bush, George Bush called that the soft bigotry of low expectations. Now, he was talking about race issues, but I think soft bigotry of low expectations doesn't necessarily have to do with race. Sotomayor, was talking at Chicago's Roosevelt University, praised her colleague and said he cares about people, but he cares differently than I do. Clarence Thomas, who grew up very poor, and he did. If you've ever read uh, biographies of Clarence Thomas, he did. He grew up exceptionally poor. He believes that everyone is capable of pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps. I believe not everyone can reach their bootstraps. Now, I think that's foolish, and I think it's dangerous, and I think it's damaging, because this is a liberal point of view that says there are certain people who can't get it done without the government or someone else helping them out. I, I would accept the people who are physically disabled, I'd say, well, if you're physically disabled, you may need some extra help. But there are plenty of physically disabled people who've gone on to do absolutely spectacularly amazing things. So in a way, that's pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. But the average person, any average person not suffering from a disability is capable of doing it too. The disabled can do it. The able-bodied can do it. The people who suffer from no deficits, physical or otherwise, can do it. And yet for Sonia Sotomayor to say there are certain people who cannot do it on their own, that is a liberal mindset that says we, the government, have to help those people out. And I think that's just plain foolish. Let's go to the calls now. Eight six six four three nine five two seven seven. Tina's on the line from Idaho. Hey, Tina, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind?
7: Hey, thanks, Lars. So I find it super ironic and, I mean, kind of agreeable in some sense here that John Fetterman is unfit to run for Senate. I think you and I agree on that. Agreed.
0: Agreed. Yep.
7: Okay. But it's kind of odd in a way that, I mean, can you expect anything different from him considering that the leader at the top himself is also incapable of holding office or making any sort of, um, I guess, good decisions for our country? I
0: mean, agreed a, we agree on that i mean joe biden almost but, got lost on the white house grounds yesterday wandered off into the bushes
7: yes he couldn't even find his way and i'm, I'm watching him and joe walk and i was like okay i mean this guy doesn't know if he's coming going what day it is what state he's in what town he's in and so yeah i guess if that's our leader at the top how can we expect other people to not think they are also fit to run for office
0: Tina, I think you make a very good point, and I completely agree with you. You know, I'm a small business owner, but even if you're not, if you've been to the grocery or hardware store, you know America has major supply chain issues. And in times like this, the businesses that win are the ones that are forward thinking. And one of the best ways to stay ahead of the curve, use the technology your customers use every day. And that's where Podium comes in. Podium gives your business the tools to compete with the convenience offered by much bigger businesses, even huge companies like Amazon. Podium lets you communicate with customers via text message, something that most people, including me, do dozens of times every day. Podium is just so convenient, it works for basically any business, plumbing to healthcare. See how Podium can grow your business. Watch a demo today at Podium.com Larson. That's Podium.com Larson podium let's grow
3: you're listening to the best of the Lars Larson show
0: welcome back to the Lars Larson show so when your kids go off to college they're generally adults 18 or greater but would you want your 18 or 19 year old daughter living in a sorority house where one of the occupants of that sorority house is a so-called transgender woman meaning a biological man who now identifies as a woman Alexa Schwerha joins me now, who's a reporter for Campus Reform and a Division II collegiate swimmer. Alexa, it's good to have you back.
8: Thank you for having me.
0: So before we get into that topic, I want to ask you something. When you were, a kid, when you were younger in, in K-12 school, did you ever go to outdoor school?
8: Outdoor remember, school. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. It's, it's a thing out in, in the Pacific Northwest. You know, they basically send the kids off to a camp for a week. And they work in their regular lessons. And then you live in the woods. You know, you live in a little cabin with counselors and all that. I thought this would relate to not only this about the sorority house, but about some of our conversations we've had about swimming where you've had to swim against biological males. I saw something refreshing the other day. There's this thing called outdoor school. And usually it's it's many of the schools that send kids off at 11 or 12, about sixth grade. And they go to this, you know, week of you know living in cabins outside and they go get science lessons and other things that are all worked into it one of the schools found out some of the kids said hey our uh our you know each cabin would have one counselor meaning an adult who would be in the cabin with them and generally that would be you know girls have a girl counselor you know boys have a boy counselor they had non-binary counselors and some of the kids said hey i'm i'm not comfortable with this i don't know if it was the young ladies the young men they said this is this is wrong and they told their teachers and their teachers called the principal and the principal called the superintendent and the superintendent said hey fire up the bus bring them home and they did they said this is wrong we're not going with this program at least there is some sanity out there in education at least in a few places
8: well i have to say that's definitely great to hear because that's not what we're seeing happen on college campuses
0: no, and in fact, I would expect, now let's get into the story you wrote about for campus reform. This involves Kappa Kappa Gamma, the first sorority in the University of Wy- Wyoming's history to accept an openly transgender student into its ranks. So the sorority says it's okay for a biological male who now identifies as female to live in the sorority with all these other young ladies? You got
8: that right. But not only is the male student allowed to be in the sorority, like you said, those male students are allowed to stay in the sorority housing. And this, unfortunately, is this new normal that female college students are going to have to consider when they're deciding where to go to college. College freshmen are as young as 18 years old, but it now might be the new normal that they're forced to share a bedroom and a shower space with male students who identify as women. And that's because the transgender movement is lying to women about what gender equality Actually, means there is nothing inclusive or supportive about giving up your own safe places as a woman to a man. It's, it's regressive, it's misogynistic, and it's putting women second to men.
0: Well, and Alexa, I've told people, they said, Well, you're worried about people being assaulted. I said, Even if you say everybody is on their best behavior, is there an issue of privacy here? I've told people that when I was a TV reporter, we'd travel a lot of times, you know, sometimes to other countries, sometimes to other parts of the United States. And when there was tight housing, you you would sometimes house, you know, a male reporter and a male uh, TV photographer in the same housing. You'd sometimes put two females together. But the station, you know, the TV stations I worked with never would have thought to say, "Hey, Lars, uh, you're taking this female photographer with you, and there's only one hotel room, so you'll be sharing the room." They would have said, "Well, that's just not right. You can't do that." And and yet there doesn't seem to be that same sensibility today. And that's even assuming people who are adults, who are acting professionally, you know, you know, you may have shared housing with your family under similar circumstances where you say we're all going to be in the same tent, but everybody's going to be polite about space and privacy and all that. They're ignoring all of that, aren't they?
8: They absolutely are. You raise an excellent point. Of course, we have women's safety here. That is definitely a large concern. But we're also talking about privacy and the fact that women are uncomfortable when men are allowed to consistently invade their spaces. As a reporter for the Leadership Institute's campus reform, I've been covering the transgender movement intensively. I've spoken with women who have been victims of this radical, dangerous agenda. I've spoken with athletes who have lost opportunities because men took away spots on their teams and in competitions. And recently, I spoke with a former sorority student who dropped out of her chapter because it was dismissing members who opposed admitting men into the ranks. Women's right to safety and privacy are clearly second fiddle when it comes to the radical left, and it's very insistent on making college campuses less safe for women.
0: Well, in fact, arguably, you could say the reason we have sororities and fraternities is because nobody would ever say, well, why don't we just put them all together? We'll just have all the young men and women live in the same house. You know, they can just be part of that can be Greek life, men and women, you know, living in the same house who who don't have any, you know, they're not married to each other or anything else. It, 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 does it surprise you that this is coming out of a place like Wyoming?
8: It should be surprising for everybody. And what's surprising is that how much traction that this radical, dangerous agenda is gaining. It was just back in March. that so we were talking about the NCAA Women's Swimming Championships, where Leah Thomas, stole the competition from the women that had worked hard to make it to a high level of competition. And since reporting on that, I've covered a story with the College of the Ozarks losing, losing a lawsuit. Um, they're trying to prevent the Biden administration from allowing men to stay in women's dorms. Now we're talking about men being allowed to invade sororities. So what we need to watch out for is how fast this dangerous movement is gaining traction on college campuses. And more people need to be standing up because it's our daughters that are going to be bearing the front of this radical policy.
0: Well, I've got a, I've got a granddaughter who's probably 12 years away from going to college if she decides to go to college. But aren't there parents and grandparents who are standing up saying, this is wrong, you can't allow this kind of thing? And what do the colleges say in return?
8: Well, the majority of Americans do oppose this radical movement to destroy women's integrity. That is important to note. does not have the backing of majority of Americans. And people are speaking out. Female athletes are speaking out. Women on campuses are speaking out. But it's very hard to be heard when the higher education administrators are actively shutting them down because their concerns aren't being listened to. But it comes from the top down. It's coming from the Biden administration. We have the Department of Education that is trying to revise Title IX to include gender identity as a protective clause. So when you have the White House that is actively trying to crack down on women's rights and walk back 50 years of hard-earned women's rights in history – It's no surprising that the women who are are speaking out about this issue aren't being listened to.
0: Well, but when it comes to sororities and fraternities, does Title IX actually apply to them as well? Aren't they private organizations? I mean, they'd have to be sanctioned by the university to be on the campus and be part of that campus community. But are they affected by Title IX as well? Do you know?
8: Talking about Title IX, we're talking about federally funded institutions. The University of Wyoming is a public institution, so there is definitely room to explore that. But in general, expanding Title IX to include gender identity is going to be disastrous for women everywhere. Title IX was put in place to protect women, to prevent discrimination based on sex. But by adding gender identity into the clause, it's doing the exact opposite. Women will be discriminated against, and they're going to be lawfully discriminated against. That's why we need every voice standing up now to oppose it.
0: Absolutely. Alexa, thanks so very much and uh, do well. We really appreciate your reporting. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. You know, those idiotic policies we keep seeing coming out of the Biden administration, things on oil drilling, transportation, supply chain, and policies internationally that have literally got people killed in places like Afghanistan. And who knows what the ultimate involvement of the Biden crime family has been in Ukraine. But back here at home, inflation is nuts right now. And this has caused the Fed to increase interest rates, which just caused Heart, a heart attack on Wall Street. Uh, Wall Street dropped all, over a 1,000 points in a single day today. And I thought we'd talk about that with Akash Choghali, who is the senior advisor uh, for economic issues for Americans for Prosperity. Akash, good to have you back. So tell me this, is anybody buying the excuse that Joe Biden keeps using that Vladimir Putin caused our inflation and Vladimir Putin caused our oil price increases and Vladimir Putin is punishing us at the pump? Is anybody buying that stuff? That's
2: a good question. And So we polled it just a couple weeks ago, Lars. And what our poll with the public opinion strategies found that 61 percent of registered voters think the president and his policies deserve at least some of the blame for higher prices. And so while Putin's invasion of Ukraine is obviously making things worse, this inflation crisis started long before that war did. And the American people largely know that President Biden's overspending and the overregulations in this administration are mostly to blame.
0: And, of course, he doesn't like that because he'd like to get his build-back-broke policy passed by Congress. I don't see a snowball's chance of that. You may have a different view of it. But I don't think this Congress, especially Democrats, who expect to probably lose their majorities in the House and the Senate this fall, I don't think they want to vote in you know, on all this additional spending when most of us, even those of us without an economics degree, understand that massive government spending is a great way to drive inflation.
2: That's Huge majorities of the country know that, Lars. Our polls show that 74% of voters think that higher levels of government spending going forward will continue to make prices rise. And so people get it. A lot of the time, you and I have talked about how folks don't get what the issue is with government overspending. People are finally feeling it in the form of $433 a month in additional expenses for the same quality of life, which is why folks realize that they don't want another partisan trillion-dollar spending bill from the Democrats one was more than enough because it made inflation worse last year, and another one would do the same this year.
0: You know what's sad, Akash? Let me throw this at you because somewhere out there, list maybe even listening to this show, is a family that was that had their hearts set on buying a house, even with all the prices going up. And because of this gigantic jackup in rates by the Fed, which was a reaction to the inflation, which was a reaction to the government spending, somewhere out there are people who I hope realize we just got torpedoed in our house deal because when the rates went up and then, in, you know, rates have gone from around 3%, uh, you know, in, in January of this year to close to 6%, well over 5%, that that change, you know, when the mortgage banker says, hey, that house you wanted to buy, the price or the, you know, the your payment just went up by a thousand bucks. And the family says, we don't have an extra thousand uh, bucks. We, we can't do it. And that, that kills that deal which means somebody who wanted to sell a house had a deal killed, somebody who wanted to buy a house. And I hope they trace that back to the people who are actually responsible for that change happening.
2: That's exactly right. I mean, we've pumped between Congress, the administration, the Fed, $10 trillion, Lars. Trillion with a T. $10 trillion into the economy over the last two years. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco itself said that the president's $2 trillion American rescue plan, as they called it, Contributed to three percentage points of inflation by 2021, and so forget buying a house. The additional five thousand dollars that folks are spending just for the same quality of life this year than they had last year—that's going to be the difference between a family vacation this summer or not, getting a new, you know, washing machine or not. So folks are going to struggle with basic expenses, well short of buying a house, because this reckless spending and regulation is making life more expensive for them.
0: I don't know if you like my idea but Akash back when we wanted a wall built on the southern border a lot of us talked about sending bricks to Washington DC I'd like to have everybody send a copy of the mouse that roared that little book from I don't know 50 60 years ago I read it when I was a kid I wish they'd send copies of that to Janet Yellen and to Jerome Powell and to and to Joe Biden and his treasury secretary and everybody else I wish they'd all say hey sit down take an hour read this book because it's not an economics text but for average people of average intelligence like Joe Biden they might actually get when you pour a whole bunch of money into a little teeny space the cost of everything goes up and nobody gets a bargain
2: well let's be clear and you know you can say what you want about Powell and Yellen the way the American people could make their voice heard is this year calling on the members of Congress to change tune and then having new leadership in Congress starting next year Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are where this stuff starts and ends as far as Biden's spending agenda. And so that's where the American people need to make their voice heard.
0: Well, you know what I'm worried about, though, Akash? And you tell me I'm wrong about this. I'd be happy to be wrong. But I've said I don't think, you know, these folks who are running for reelection, many of whom have just said I'm not even going to I'm not even going to seek another term. But for the ones that may be right on the margins, you know what I'm worried about? If they realize that they are now short-termers, they are likely to get taken out in the fall general election because of all this, they might just decide, well, now I've got nothing to lose. You know, and I might as well go ahead and vote through broke, you know, build back broke and cast a vote for. If I'm going to get bounced out of Congress anyway, then I'll make my vote count and all my liberal friends will remember me and maybe a a think tank or two. And I'll be able to find a job after I get bounced out of Congress. Should we be concerned that that may be one of the results? I know they'll all they'll all play a good game and say, oh, yeah, I, I, ex- I expect to get reelected this fall. But for the ones where the writing is kind of on the wall, you're, you're very unlikely to hang on to your seat. Then why not go for it and vote for the crazy stuff
3: anyway?
2: I don't think so. Right. Because a lot can change between now and November. and I think a lot of these people think they can keep their jobs despite what the numbers look like. And so we have a real chance to make our voices heard. And, and I think Pelosi, Schumer, Biden, they know better than to do that. They're going to push and push and push and I think Pelosi and Schumer are exactly where you're saying, where they're going to use every opportunity to to fundamentally transform this country. I don't think that's the case for some of these marginal members that are in tight races this year. But the one thing that can make a difference, Lars, is people getting involved. And that's why Americans Prosperity has launched this True Cost of Washington campaign to educate and activate people, to keep the pressure on, for Congress to change direction. And so folks across the country know who is to blame for the inflation that's a result of this reckless spending.
0: You know, Akash, I know it's kind of out of your lane, but uh, and I know a lot of the focus is always on Washington, D.C., but how much of this could be affected in the next six months by state policies? Because the states kind of split about 27 conservative, about 23 are the more liberal. Now, they're the least likely to change. But a lot of those states could say whatever the other extra dollars that we're shoveling out, because a lot of them have kept very generous policies on things like TANF, on things like food stamps, on things like unemployment benefits and things like that. Some of those could. They could say, look, this is bad policy. Let's start curbing some of this stuff because maybe we can start to bring some of this back under control. You think there's any potential for that if citizens get angry yeah, enough about it?
2: That's a great question. So a lot of states are out of session. But, and as you mentioned, Laura, they're flush with cash. What they should do is be sure that they're using that extra cash for structural reforms, right? Not these yep. one-time big handouts or, you know, starting brand new programs that are going to run out of money when the federal cash runs out. And so folks can't call their state lawmakers to be smart with that extra cash, no one-time spending, no welfare expansions, no new programs, because that money, as you mentioned, is, is going to dry up. It was one-time funds from the federal government so states could make a difference that way
0: absolutely akash thank you very much for what you do at americans for prosperity pleasure to be with you and if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism it's easy 866 hey lars and naysayers go to the head of the line at 866-439-5277
3: you're listening to the best of the lars larson show
0: welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you i ask you this question not entirely rhetorically Does Dr. Anthony Fauci deserve to be the country's highest paid retiree? Now, I'm reasonably sure that Dr. Fauci would argue, well, I worked at the federal government for 50 years, to which a lot of us would respond, yeah, just about 20 years too long. And he would probably tell you that everything he has done has been in the public interest, including, of course, his statement well over a year ago that the vaccine for COVID is actually 100% effective against hospitalization and death, which turns out not to be true either. So I'll ask our friend Frank Gaffney, the founder of the Center for Security Policy, does Dr. Fauci deserve to be America's highest paid government retiree, Frank?
9: I think Dr. Fauci deserves to be in federal prison and I don't think that that has a salary associated with it, or if it does, it's uh, a marginal one, shall we say. Agreed. Uh, There's payments for license plate manufacturing, maybe, but look, Lars, uh, you've documented what's going on here, which is that uh, for two years, we've been, a little bit more actually now, subjected to a tyranny of Dr. Fauci's making, not exclusively, but predominantly. The documentation of it is uh, growing by the day, as a matter of fact, and I think the American people are entitled to accountability, not to more of the Promotion of this false narrative that uh, Doctor Fauci saved us from the terrible coronavirus. In fact, he bears a very substantial measure of responsibility for creating the thing with our money, no less, as well as our technology. And worse yet, the technology that he transferred to the biological warfare laboratory known as the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which resulted in the creation of this uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus in that laboratory through that kind of gain of function, genetic engineering, is uh, now uh, responsible for having killed, we're told, something like a million of us. And unfortunately, worse yet, Lars, that same technology, that same know-how, capability, uh, is residing in a place where far more deadly diseases including one called Nipah, are reportedly being worked on by these uh, same biological warfare experts of the Chinese Communist Party. This is, this is a disaster of the first order. He's and responsible it's, and it's Fauci,
0: it was Fauci's sign-off that allowed millions of dollars, thank God it wasn't tens of millions, to flow to that lab in China where a lot of us suspect that the, the, the virus actually originated. I mean, uh, we may never get to truly to the bottom of that one Um, I hope we do, but the Chi-Coms are pretty good at covering things up. But we sent our tax, or Anthony Fauci agreed to allow our tax dollars to be sent to Wuhan to do the kind of uh, research, um, design of diseases uh, that even Barack Obama had said, this can't happen on our soil, it's too dangerous. So Fauci decided to allow it to go to China where it's even more dangerous because of the people who who control it now, as you point out.
9: yeah, It's not just the money, unfortunately, and who knows how much money actually was involved. At the end of the day, I suspect it's more than a couple of million. But whatever it was, it was the technology. It was the know-how. It was the gain-of-function capabilities that were transferred by Tony Fauci so that he could do there something he was not allowed to do in the United States, just as you say, by presidential direction. But here's the kicker, Lars, we we did a study of this. Uh, it's called the Team B3 Report. Its title is, The CCP is at War with America. And people can get this for free, as a downloadable PDF, by the way, at ccpatwar.com. And the finding, the, the purpose of this was to get a second opinion from what the intelligence community has told us, which is we just can't tell you where this virus came from. Maybe it was the lab, maybe it was nature. There is, according to Dr. Stephen Hatfield and others on our team, uh, and by the way, Steve Hatfield is probably the preeminent expert in the country on biological warfare. Yes. Uh, his professional career defending us against it. He says there's absolutely no evidence. None. Zero. Zero that this came out of natural sources. And he says there's plenty of circumstantial evidence that it came out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. You're right. We can't say for certain, we don't have the direct evidence that only the Chinese could provide, but they won't give it to us. But the circumstantial evidence prompts him to say, uh, this likely came out of that laboratory. And more to the point, Lars, what we know for sure is once it got out, however it did, it was deliberately sent around the world, which our Team B-3 has described as a biological warfare attack. Yep. And that's part and parcel of their plan for us is uh, apparently, you know, depopulating us. And this was a terrific proof of concept made possible, again, by Tony Fauci and his team with, again, not just the transfer of funds, but specific assistance in technologies that were relevant to this gain-of-function research and enabled... This, uh, you know, coronavirus to be made vastly more dangerous because it was made more transmissible to humans than it would otherwise have been.
0: Well, think about all the false signaling that we got from Fauci. I mean, early on, I think in in February, March of of 2020, he said, "Oh, this isn't going to be a problem for the United States." And I think, frankly, he was whistling past the graveyard because at that time. We didn't know his tie-in. We didn't know the lab tie-in. We didn't know a lot of those details. He's saying, oh, this isn't going to be a big deal for the United States. It turned out to be a very big deal for the United States. But him saying that uh, allowed some other politicians to say, oh, Donald Trump's being anti-Chinese. He's a racist. He's a bigot. You know, and invite you down to Chinatown and have some dinner with Nancy Pelosi. And then I was reminded that, you know, Fauci, the independent reported, um, and this was last year, All three vaccines are 100 percent effective against death and hospitalization, Fauci says. So he had bad signaling early on and bad signaling all the way through when it whether it was masks, whether it was vaccine mandates, whether it was, hey, look, the vaccines are 100 percent effective against hospitalization and death, which is provably untrue by our own experience. A lot of that sounds like ancient history now, but you realize it was only, you know, less than 24 months ago.
9: Lars, you and I have been friends for a long time. Yeah, I've been doing this show with you for most of that time. I think false signaling or bad signaling understates in a way that I've never heard you do. Well, the true character of what's talking. We're talking about these are lies, Lars. They're lies. Lies. And, and, and were, no were they lies deliberate deliberately by Fauci to cover up oh, Fauci's
0: implications?
9: 100%. How, yeah. how else could you interpret what we know, as you say? Had he told us, and this is, this is coming from people like Scott Atlas and others who were trying to fix this problem, and, and, and uh, I think Steve Atfield is the same, trying to fix this problem at the very moment, that a pandemic response was clearly required not the china model by the way which tony fauci was happy to impose upon us uh the the world health organization the chinese communist party all wanted it done and he was happy to go along with it deborah burke's the same but here's the thing (laughs) what they were doing was absolutely denying us knowledge that was directly relevant to the problem that we were trying to address. Yes, they were covering it up. Yes, they were concealing their responsibility for this stuff, Tony Fauci and and his friends. But they were lying to us in a way that contributed materially to the fact that a million of us are dead now.
0: That's absolutely right. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network, and it's a pleasure to be with you. I want to get to your phone calls here because i think i'm kind of curious about what this caller has to ask about uh david welcome to the program you had a question to pose for me and i'd be glad to take it on i mean i I do that for almost anybody who'd call the show but what's on your mind
10: hey lars i've listened to your show for several years ago and first time calling uh enjoy listening to you and my question was what has ever happened to the hydrogen vehicles that were ran on hydrogen because I thought at the time it was a great idea, it's very easy to make hydrogen, and whatever happened to that?
0: Well, uh, I, first, people, I think people are, are I mean, it's a very intriguing idea. Okay, let's start with that. And in, in high school, when I was a debater, one year we debated energy topics for a year. They, they have national debate topics, and, and energy was one of them. And we had an, a hydrogen case. But there's something you should know about hydrogen as a fuel. Do you know where I can find a hydrogen well? Well, no. Is there but any such thing?
10: A, I don't believe there's a hydrogen well, but no, there's not.
0: Um, so if 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 you were out of gas in your car, you know those familiar red gas cans you can buy. I mean, most of us have a few of them sitting around, you know, as backup or to fuel the you know the the power tools that we use. If I hand you the empty can, can you can you fuel your car from it? Yes, you can. I'll tell you. Really? How you, uh, I hand you an empty you can. What are you going to put in your car?
10: Well, you would need electricity, water, which is H2O, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen, right? And electricity.
0: Yeah. And the electricity. So all-, all the hydrogen does yeah. is carry the energy, right? Right. Okay. So if you had a hydrogen car right now, you'd say, see, I've got a car it runs on hydrogen. Since there are no hydrogen wells, you have to create the hydrogen. Now, the fastest way to make it is out of natural gas, which the greenies are not going to allow, uh, because you can do what's called reformation of natural gas into hydrogen. It also produces methane and a few other things, but you can f- fuel things that run on hydrogen from that. But the energy has to come from somewhere. What I was comparing the empty gas can to is that hydrogen carries energy. But you've got to put the energy in there to begin with. It'd be like me handing wouldn't you, an, you, uh, you know, a car battery that's been run flat and say, go ahead, start your car with that and you go, no, you've got to put some electricity in it." That's what you have to wouldn't,
5: do. Wouldn't you just need water:
0: a little no bit you of need, no the electricity is the electricity. key part, David. How, where do you get the energy that creates the hydrogen?
10: Well, the electricity splits the molecules of uh, no, I, I,
0: water. Now, no, David, David, I understand the the physics of it. I've done it myself in in the lab. I mean, I can split okay. water into oxygen and hydrogen, but you've got to put electricity in. Where are you going to get correct. the electricity? Well, you would have a car battery, correct?
11: No.
0: <laughs> David, you're, you're missing something here. I give you a brand new hydrogen-powered car, but it has an empty tank where do you get the energy that you create the hydrogen with to fuel your hydrogen car and you say from electricity two-thirds of america's electricity comes from fossil fuels and they're shutting down those fossil fuel plants just as fast as they can all the hydrogen acts as is a battery for the car basically it, that, that you're allowed to store energy in the form of hydrogen but you've got to make it first and there are two basic ways to make it one is from massive amounts of electricity And then you've got to build all the infrastructure for creating all that hydrogen. But the biggest problem is the electricity. Where do you get the energy?
10: So are you saying that it would require more fuel to make the batteries and the vehicles? no what you're no saying?
0: no if you have a hydrogen powered car you can take an ordinary gasoline engine and convert it to run on natural gas to run on propane or to run on hydrogen it's a little more complicated because hydrogen's a very small molecule it likes to escape so you have to have you know storage that will allow you to do that but david you got to make the hydrogen first and that takes energy so if you said we we have all these hydrogen cars i said where are you going to get the power to run them and you go well you just plug into a wall outlet. No, the electricity has to come from somewhere, David.
10: Well, right. So the so I I'm not sure if you're obviously if you've worked in the lab, have you ever used or or converted a vehicle into hydrogen and making a hydrogen motor.
0: No, I haven't. Basically, but there are car there are car companies that have done it running. You can run an engine on all kinds of things. You can run it on natural right. gas. You can run it on propane. You can run it on basically any kind of gas that will burn. Hydrogen will burn. Now, you can run it through a fuel cell. that That converts the hydrogen and oxygen back into electricity with very few moving parts. But you've got to make the hydrogen first. And the hydrogen has to be created using energy. There are a couple. There are actually three ways to do it. One is electrolysis that you already mentioned. One is reforming natural gas, and the third one uses nuclear power. Where if you heat water to a certain temperature, it will actually break the molecular bonds into both hydrogen and and oxygen. You break the water, so it becomes hydrogen and oxygen. But you got to have the energy that does that. And all of the greenies have said. You're going to have less electricity. We're shutting down fossil fuels, and that's two-thirds of our electric grid right now. The Greenies do not want you to build any new nuclear plants, and they don't want you to use natural gas and turn that into hydrogen. So where are you going to get the hydrogen?
10: I see, and I think it's maybe it's just a, uh, uh, maybe a misunderstanding with with the making of the hydrogen and the energy that you're asking where it's coming from.
0: Yeah, it has to come from somewhere, David, and the Greenies have decided to cut off every source we have for energy. You got the Lars Larson Show.
3: You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that shortly at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. And, of course, naysayers always go to the head of the line. If you want to vote in our Twitter poll, you can find that two places. You don't have to put up with Twitter, and I don't like Twitter. Twitter either at Lars Larson show on Twitter or Lars on the web. Email address is easy to remember. That's talk at LarsLarson.com. It is a great pleasure to welcome back to the program the woman who, if there is any justice in this world, and if we get a fair election, will be the next U.S. senator from the great state of Washington. And I have a dog in the fight because she will be my U.S. senator, and I'll actually be proud of my representation in the uh, upper chamber uh, at that point, Tiffany Smiley. How are you doing, Miss Smiley? Hi, Lars.
7: Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.
0: I'm glad to do it. And you have my endorsement. I want you to beat this Thank far left wing liberal Patty Murray. Uh yeah. I, I don't I think you've done a good job of pointing out that she's been there for not quite a third of a century, three decades anyway. And Washington really doesn't have anything to show for it, does it?
7: That's right. I was 11 years old when Patty Murray was first elected. And just look at, you know, the current, current controversy of Patty Murray not wanting to debate me. You know, I, I used to question, is she afraid of debating a farm girl for Pasco, Washington, or is she afraid of defending her 30-year record? And the truth of it is, she has no legs to stand on. Um, you know, I'm talking to voters all over Washington State who are saying, where is she been?" You know, she went on the Senate floor June of 2020, called for funds to be diverted away from our police force. And then when uh, reckless, recklessness and criminals uh, destroyed our city, trickled out into our community, she was nowhere to be found. And they said, you know, we didn't hear hear about Patty Murray until she came out attacking you. And uh, just look at her abs. All she does is attack me. She has nothing to stand on.
0: No. And in fact, uh, that's the part that I find the strangest. I mean, I've offered up debates between candidates for congress and senate before and it always floors me when somebody says i really believe in this stuff but i'm not willing to have a debate if patty murray thinks she's on good solid ground in defending the things she stands up for you'd think she'd say bring on the debate i'm gonna i'm gonna drill that tiffany smiley right into the debate stage she'll be sorry she ever walked up there except that when somebody says oh no i don't want to be i I don't want to be in a debate with her it tells me they don't have the courage of their convictions right
7: That's that's exactly right. And it's a disservice to the voters of Washington state. I mean, I I look at that as complete disrespect um, to the people that she is supposed to be serving. But it's clear, you know, we know she serves Washington, D.C. That's who she cares about. And it was popular to defund the police. So, of course, that's what Patty Murray did. She doesn't care about Washington state that's what i'm here fighting for i'm fighting for washington state and I'm, I'm very proud of my agenda of recovery and reform that we have put out I'm, I'm announcing a new policy every single week because patty murray is hurting families here there are families who are trying to feed their kids and and can't or having to decide you know do i put gas in my car or buy a gallon of milk it, the difference in in how we vote this november couldn't be more of a contrast i will combat that i will lower the cost i will get Cost of food and groceries down, I will unleash American energy independence, which will help offset costs for families. And I think it's important to know that, you know, Patty, with this um, inflation, I call it the Inflation Production Act, because that's exactly what it is. It's not a reduction act. Um, She was the deciding vote for an excise tax on natural gas. So everyone in Washington, you're going to see your energy costs skyrocket heading into uh, the winter this is Patty Murray's agenda. I will change that. We can lower costs. We do not have to be living the way that we are in Washington state under Patty Murray's policy.
0: By the way, I wanted to mention your husband. He's an active duty army officer. And you say, okay, thanks for your service. Except a lot of people may not realize your your husband made history. He's the first blind active duty army officer. Would you mind explaining how that came about? Because Patty Murray is the one I like to remind people. She stood in front of a high school class and sang the praises yep. of Osama bin Laden. And I will never let people forget that. She takes the side to the terrorists. Your family yes. has had real losses because of the terrorists and your your husband in particular.
7: Yes. And she did that after 9-11. Um, and it's, it's, it's absolutely, you know... I, Decision couldn't be more clear. My husband, our our life forever changed when um, I was 23 years old and received the call that my husband was clinging on to life. One thing was certain: is he'd never see again. He was blinded by a suicide car bomb in service to our country in Mosul, Iraq. Um, And then, you know, truly the reason that we're fighting is because we really experience, you know, policy affects real people and. I had to take on the Department of Defense when Scotty was in a coma and he'd have a voice for himself, took on the Army and the DOD, helped Scotty make a miraculous recovery, thank God I was a nurse, and um, believed in this crazy idea that um, a blind person could, should and uh, be afforded the ability to continue on active duty. I saw Scotty as being able to give back, and I wanted life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for him, everything that he was for all of us over overseas, and so... He took on the Army, built a coalition, and he went on and became the first blind active duty officer to ever serve our country. We served our country for over a decade with him completely blind.
0: Well, the fact that his eyes don't work doesn't mean that his brain is still working, and so right. you know we we should make <laughs> we shouldn't just talk the talk about people who are disabled. The other thing I'm encouraged by is you've taken on the the issue of the elections because a lot of us had very serious concerns and still do about the conduct of the 2020 election. You say we've got to get this under control and get a system Americans can trust. Needs
7: to be. Um, uh, easy to vote and hard to cheat. We need confidence in in our election system. And one thing that I think is important is that we need to ensure that the efforts to increase voter participation, um, that they do not undermine the confidence in our elections by banning federalization of elections. I think, uh, you know, me and Patty couldn't be more different on this issue. She would love nothing more than to federalize our elections, which I think is that absolutely wrong for our country um so i i came out with a, a political agenda for recovery reform, which includes that you know another thing um when i am washington state's next senator i will pledge to hold 10 town hall meetings per year because i think it's important i think it should be a standard um that our elected officials are in touch with the voters and and communicating with them on a regular basis so it truly is the voice of the people Um, And, uh, you know, we need to ban taxpayer funds from ever going towards political campaigns. Um, I always encourage everyone, though, you know, the worst thing we can do in this country is not vote. Use your voice and vote. I need everyone in Washington state to get registered and go to the polls (laughs) and vote like your life depends on it because it does. These elections are so important this midterm.
0: Smiley for Washington. That's where they find you online, don't they? SmileyForWashington.com.
7: Smiley for Washington, come join the movement. Let's hold Joe Biden and Patty Murray accountable for their failed policies that are affecting us every single day.
0: Ms. Smiley, thank you very much and give my best to your husband. you got to make sure the right person goes to D.C. for Washington State. You've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. So a year and a half ago, we ended a time when I think No other American president in history has ever been fact-checked as much as Donald Trump. He could get words out of his mouth and within about 10 seconds, somebody at CNN or MSNBC or the New York Times or The Washington Post was fact-checking, saying that's not true, that's not true. In fact, the major media continues to call Donald Trump a liar on so many different issues, incorrectly so. But then why aren't they taking Joe Biden? Uh, to the woodshed for the kind of things and the lies he's told about some of his own people, people in uniform, people with a badge. Well, I thought we'd talk about that with Mark Morgan, who's the former chief operating officer and acting commissioner of U.S. Customs and Border Protection and a, found a, a fellow at uh, the Heritage Foundation. Mark, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Let me start with the headline. Is it fair to say that Joe Biden has been lying about some of his own border agents?
12: Yeah, absolutely, no doubt. And look, there, we, we could spend a, the your entire show talking about specifics and in multiple incidents, but the horse patrol issue alone, as I think most of your listeners know, remember, he used a bully pulpit, Lars, to to say uh, that, that what they did was atrocious and that, quote, they will pay. And at that moment... Th- Everyone knew it was a lie. I mean, moments after those, those pictures were shown, it was debunked. The very photographer who took the pictures said that they were split lanes and they were not used to whip anybody. Yet that didn't stop the secretary, the White House, the vice president, and the president from vilifying, scapegoating, and basically ruin these agents' lives and their careers and their reputations.
0: By the way, Mark, uh, just for my audience, uh, the issue, and I, I guess sometimes with issues, Mark, that, that all that some of us are very familiar with, this was is the issue where you had Haitian peop- illegal aliens trying to come across the border. There was a huge crowd of them. The Border Patrol was trying to do what it could to control this crowd, both for you know immigration purposes, but also for purposes of crowd control, which is public safety, even of the people in the crowd. And when you're on horseback, As I understand the training, you'll sometimes want to get a horse to move forward. And if there are a bunch of human beings in front of the horse, as there were, waving their arms and waving sacks of things in front of them, the horse is not exactly enthusiastic about going forward. So you twirl the reins and the horse catches the movement out of his eye and the horse either moves and turns or moves forward. Am I right?
12: I tell you what, I, I'm impressed listening to you because I could not have explained it better. You're, you're, Thank you. What you said is, seriously, what you said is exactly correct. In fact, it takes talent for anybody that knows anything about horses. Those those horsemen on there to do just as you describe that takes talent, skill and continuing training with a specific horse to be able to do that. As you said, I mean, there'd be an approach. In fact, there were Haitians actually trying to grab the horse and grab the agent at times. That happens on a regular basis. And another thing that you said, very important, it wasn't just to stop them from coming across. It was a crowd control issue, and it was a safety issue. It was to also direct them in, into an area that was safe as, of, as opposed to the chaos that we saw. And yet this administration, um, from day one, has lied. American people. And, and so we now know the investigation is finally completed. And what they've done now, I think personally, uh, to, to, to save face, is they've reverted this back to now an administrative inquiry. And we heard that that some sort of punishment, administrative punishment is going to come down. But what's key about this is that means they found no criminal wrongdoing. The Department of Justice waived on this, the Civil Rights Division. The Department of Homeland Security, Inspector General, they waived on this, no criminal wrongdoing. So what that means is nobody whipped anybody. It was a lie. It was false. It never happened. Yet they still have continued to, to push this lie. And no one has got out and corrected that publicly.
0: Well, since I'm doing well on horse descriptions, Mark, let me try another one, because this has always teed me up when public officials do it and they do it in local police departments. I'll get to it. But you mentioned the investigation. Here's what they do that. I think I think politicians who do this uh, ought to be taken out and horse whipped themselves. Um and, and that includes Joe Biden. Uh, Because what they do is they come out and they declare something that's been done by, say, a cop or in this case, a border agent. They declare it outrageous. They declare it despicable. And then they say, and now we're going to have an investigation. And you say, hold on. The guy who's the man that all the executive branch agencies answer to, Joe Biden, has declared what the conclusion is. And immediately after declaring what the conclusion is, he says, now we're going to have an investigation to see whether anything wrong was done. Well, he's, he's already in a, like a mayor or a police chief saying, my cops were a hundred percent wrong. And now we're going to investigate. Well, you've, if you're the head of the agency and you've just declared that what they did, you've already judged them and said they are guilty. Uh, but now we'll have the investigation. It's like, uh, well, what is it? Uh, conviction first, facts later. You know, that's, that's yeah, what they're but- doing.
12: Yeah, uh, Lawrence, again, that's exactly right. Look, remember, you have the Secretary of Homeland Security, who shame on him because he knows better. right? He was a former prosecutor. He was a former assistant United States attorney. He knows better. Before a, the ink drive from a single invest, uh, interview with respect to the investigation, he was already m- t- talking about how those images were, were uh, horrible, and it was hard to watch. I mean, he was already making statements of guilt, again, before the investigation had already began. Look, and I serve under two different agencies at executive levels within those agencies and internal affairs uh, departments. And I can guarantee you that puts a chilling effect, right? I mean, when you know that not only your boss, but your boss's boss, and oh, yeah, this little thing called the president of the United States has gone out there and uses bully pulpit to say that, in fact, something was done wrong and they will pay. Of course, that puts a chilling effect on what I believe should be a fair and impartial investigation. And here's part of what I mean by that, is that it should be very narrow. It should have been, hey, did they whip anybody? No, let's move on. Right? But I'll that's tell you what, they did.
0: I'd like to whip my own uh, business for a while, too, because I was a reporter for a long time, Mark. And I think the media has been wrong. Uh, most of the coverage of this should have immediately said the president is declaring that what they've done is wrong. Here's the statement from the photographer who was actually there on the ground taking the pictures, saw it up front, and the media, if it was doing its job, would say, here's the president saying that what they did was ugly, wrong, despicable, and and was going to get punished, and here's the photographer saying the president of the United States is not describing what happened there because the media loves to put you know, and, and we do for a good reason. If you've got a politician saying one thing and, and somebody else who was actually there who saw it with their own eyes saying, that's not what happened. You juxtapose those two. And if you're a good reporter, you keep your opinion out and you let the, the audience decide. Let's see. The president says that's what happened. He saw a still pick. The photographer was actually, I don't know, 100 yards away, uh, saw it with his own eyes. Which one are we going to believe? And, and you know that, and the media knows that if they had done that, The public would have said, well, Joe Biden is lying again to us. But but the most of the media is in the tank for the guy.
12: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that this is one of of, of, countless examples to show just that I, I keep calling the mainstream media the extension of the Democratic Party. And that's not hyperbole because we have factually based examples. One we're talking about right now that I think shows proves that and illustrates that. And I'll go a step further. I believe this administration also has a responsibility. This secretary, Secretary Mayorkas, he has a responsibility to the very men and women that he has the charge to oversee. He has a responsibility to them just as well as he has a responsibility to the American people. And once this was found out to be false and a lie, he should have used his bully pulpit
0: you're absolutely right. That's Mark Morgan, the former CEO of Customs and Border Protection, back in a moment on The Lars Larson Show.
3: You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show.
0: Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. If you're a parent out there and you're concerned about the way your kids are going to do or are doing in public schools, I share your concern. And I say that as a product of public schools, K-12. My wife was also in public schools, K-12. And our adult kids were in public schools, K-12. And yet and still, these days, the public schools are not exactly producing fantastic results. And the most recent assessment of those results, the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, says that things are even worse now. Now, of course, we're hearing a lot of politicians say, well, that's just the pandemic. What they ignore is the fact that It was going on before the pandemic. It is going to go on after the pandemic, and that this is just used as an excuse by folks like the teachers' union. So, why don't we take a look at what the real causes are? Ashley Varner joins me now, who's vice president of communications and federal affairs at the Freedom Foundation. Ashley, good to have you back.
13: Lars, it's always great to talk to you, but this is not a fun conversation to have, even though it's very important that we keep talking about it.
0: I'd I'd agree with you on that. And I know that a lot of my audience is going to say, Lars, you've explained many times you don't like unions in general. I don't, I don't say that people shouldn't have the right to join a union. That's well-established in federal law. I'd even argue that unions are supported by the Constitution, the right of freedom of association, uh, the right of uh, the ability to, to associate with anyone you want. You can form an association and bargain collectively. And that's well-recognized in federal law. In fact, I always tell folks who say, well, the unions are being driven away. I said, no, they're not. It's never been easier to form a union than it is today or more well-protected under federal and state law. And yet the teachers union plays, uh, I think, a real pernicious role in the failure of American schools. Is there some support for that?
13: Absolutely agree with you, Lars. And even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that stalwart conservative president, (laughs) uh, he did not think that having public sector unions was a good idea because he recognized uh, the problem that would come into play when you have unions bargaining with politicians who then make laws uh, without having the taxpayer present at the table? And and so this is when you talk about teachers unions. We're paying for those teachers unions because those teachers' salaries. Are, it's your money. It's my money. It's everyone listening to our voices right now. Um, but we don't get to have a say in what the teachers unions do. And now we see through this pandemic. You know that we they actually overplayed their hands. They didn't think this through, Lars, because. They wanted to use this as a strike. They didn't have to call. They kept kids at home uh, and learning on laptops if they were learning. Uh, but they, they got to give parents a front row view of what was actually going on inside the classrooms that parents did not know their kids were being exposed to. So that's the one really genuine silver lining of this pandemic and the school closures is that uh, the teachers unions exposed themselves Parents got to see what their kids were being taught or indoctrinated in. And now they have the knowledge of, and power to take back uh, the control over their own kids' education, which, you know, honestly, we just kind of let it go. The, the country as a whole just kind of trusted the, the schools, the education system, the teachers' unions to just teach their kids. And they maybe didn't pay all that much attention as to what was going on. But now you have parents as a brand-new constituency And whether they're registered Democrat or Republican, they want their kids to get a good education. And they are going to the polls very upset.
0: Yeah, and and they should be because, Ashley, um, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but a little over two years ago. As we're heading into the fall of the first year of the pandemic, there were, you know, public meetings and there were discussions about going into remote learning and things like that. And I remember one teacher just blew a gasket. It was a young lady from, I think, Philadelphia. And she said, we can't let the parents see what what's going on inside our classrooms. And and I think a lot of parents come. They came to find out why that teacher was so anguished over the idea that parents might actually see what was being taught because the teachers themselves understood some of the stuff we've been doing is not going to be approved by the parents. The only reason that they kind of signed off on it before is because they trusted us. And they said, we, we assume you're doing right by our kids. And the minute they said, and you know, parents may see this on remote learning lessons, the teachers became apoplectic. Not many of them were as honest or perhaps as, you know, maybe not as discreet as that teacher to say, say it out loud. We can't let the parents see this. But that's exactly the message parents have been getting is, yeah, we've been teaching your kids and indoctrinating your kids, and you have no business telling us to do otherwise. And that, and then I'll throw in the other thing, when you said FDR saw the dangers of this, the one other element I'd throw in is not only are taxpayers not at the bargaining table, parents aren't at the bargaining table, they're forbidden to know what's in a contract till it's already signed but the other element that they don't have is the teachers unions can say to a politician uh, whether it's a school board member or a member of congress or a member of the state legislature don't you dare cross us because if you do all the donations we made to your campaign stop all the help we get by scaring up voters to vote for you stop and it'll go to your you know to your competitor to your opponent and we will get them elected instead of you so the politicians it's it's had a i think a corrosive effect on the agreement between politicians who say, we will represent the people in their best interests. And all of a sudden, the unions come in and say, no, you're going to represent the best interests of teachers unions. And if you don't, we'll take you out of office. And all of a sudden, the politician is effectively either forced or bribed into throwing away his commitment to the public and saying, my commitment is to make sure the teachers unions get whatever they need.
13: It's an excellent point, Lars, and you took the words right out of my mouth. We at the Freedom Foundation refer to this as the cycle of corruption because you've got the, the unions, especially the teachers' unions, they are some of the biggest funders in this whole country across the states of leftist politicians and their leftist agendas. And when it's their campaign checks that go to the politicians, who are the politicians going to listen to, just as you explained? Um, but what what is heartening is if you have seen reports about the number of teachers who have just gotten fed up and they have left the teachers' unions, they've resigned their membership. Uh, Since the COVID shutdown started in March of 2020, uh, if you've heard of the 74million.org, they did a study um, that over 80,000 teachers in just the 2020-21 school year hung up their union membership, and they stopped paying dues to Randy Weingarten and the AFT and the NEA. So that is a great start. And and I can't imagine uh, that it's only getting worse because teachers are getting fed up. The Freedom Foundation talks to teachers every single day across the country who are fed up. They thought that maybe they could just put their head down and teach in their classroom what they really wanted to teach, which is reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, But they realized that So long as they are still paying union dues, they're funding this garbage, whether they agree with it or not. So we're helping teachers across the country leave their unions and stop stop paying into these teachers unions that are just politicizing our schools.
0: You know, just today, Ashley, I got an email from a a listener and he said his daughter came home with this photograph and she had taken a photograph of the whiteboard, not a blackboard in a modern classroom, and it had a list. And under it were all the negative stereotypes of and what they, the teacher had written was white girls and 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 white boys. And, and there were some pretty nasty ones, including school shooter under white boys. And they said, well, they were talking about stereotypes. And I said, I'm willing to bet they didn't put up any POC stereotypes up there because that would have caused real trouble. But I thought this is the kind of indoctrination that's being shoved on your kids by members of Randy Weingarten's union. And, and they're completely protected at the legislatures and, at the, and on Capitol Hill and by an American president who's fully bought in with what the teachers unions want. So, Ashley, I appreciate the update. Ashley Varner is with the federal, uh, she's with federal affairs at the Freedom Foundation. And by the way, on that subject, I'm glad to hear naysayers. If you want to tell me, no, no, that's not the way it works in my classroom. I'm glad for that. I know there are some conservative teachers out there. And if you want to sound off as a listener to this show, it's 866-HEY-LARS and naysayers go first. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And join me in welcoming Pam Lewison, who's director of the Washington Policy Center Initiative on Agriculture. And since I like to eat, I love farmers. Pam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. I want you to tell my audience about these new smoke rules that Washington State has decided to put in place. They say we're going to protect people by putting new rules in place. Now, this is usually the government saying we're from the government and we're here to help. Are they actually helping or are they making the situation worse?
11: You know, I think anytime the Department of Labor and Industries says that they're here to help, uh, oftentimes they're more a hindrance than anything else. Um, And these smoke rules fall in that category. They would like to uh, encourage employers to implement exposure rules and um, encourage the use of respirator masks when the air quality index is at 69, which for most people is just a regular sort of dusty, not great day outside. Uh, And then mandate the use of respirator masks when um, the air quality index uh, reaches 101, which for most people, uh, anybody who's a relatively healthy individual, um, is more of a cumbersome burden than anything else.
0: Yeah, I, I, I mean... To me, Pam, I've never worked uh, a physical... Well, I have. I, I worked a phys- physical jobs when I was a kid. But as an adult, the most physical I get is going out and, you know, when Tina says, move this dirt or these rocks from this side of the yard to that side of the yard. Uh, that's the most physical I get. But for people who work physical jobs that are hard, the idea of strapping a mask on your face while you're doing that, and the government says, hey, we're helping you out. Yeah, by making it harder for me to breathe. And they say, but we're saving you from the smoke. You and I both talked about this the fact, it might take some of the particles out of the air. Uh, that's what the mask will do. It doesn't take any of the other, if there are toxic gases in the air, it's not going to take those out. That, that's the most it's going to do is protect you from some of the particulate matter, right?
11: Right. And I think there's another, there's another component to that. Um, <clears throat> employers do have the option to give their employees uh, what are called canister respirator masks. So something um, smaller and but similar to what a firefighter would wear. The problem with canister masks is if you don't have a doctor's note that clears you to wear a canister mask, you're actually um, potentially putting yourself in harm's way wearing that because it's not unlike wearing scuba gear out of the water.
0: Well, except that at least with scuba gear, uh, you know, I've only done that a couple of times in my life. But at least there, when you breathe, it's a demand regulator; it actually pushes air out. But with a canister respirator, aren't you working against the canister all the time? You're having to suck air through it.
11: Yes, and that's that's where the problem comes in. If you don't have a doctor's note that says uh, you are in good enough health to use that canister, you have the potential to be truly hurting yourself. Uh, And if you have an employer that is is really just trying to provide extra protection, they have the potential to be doing more harm than good uh, simply by wanting to um, sort of overcompensate for the rules that they're trying to put in place.
0: Do the regulators understand this? Do they get this or do they just sit in a nice air-conditioned office somewhere and write a bunch of rules and say, this sounds good without actually considering the practical effect on the people who have to do it
11: i think uh anybody who's ever had to deal with the department of labor and industries um (laughs) can take take their shot at that
0: well yeah i mean i hear from workers construction workers all the time yeah they they make us do it this way and it's actually more dangerous than it would be to do it the way we've been doing it but they say we have to do it that way so we risk a fine if we don't anything else we should know about this one pam
11: Uh, So this rule is not in place yet. The public comment period ended yesterday. Uh, So I expect that we will see the firm version of the rule in the next um, month or so.
0: Well, I hope they got a bunch of negative feedback, although my faith in either Olympia, Boise, or Salem to actually listen to the public input they always ask for uh, is not exactly high. I think they tend to say, we want public input, and then we're going to do whatever we plan to do. Keep up the good work at the uh, Center for Agriculture at the Washington Policy Center, Pam.
11: Thank you. I will.
0: Glad to have you on. It's a First Amendment Friday. Let me go to Igor, uh, or is it Igor, who's a naysayer. Igor, welcome to the program. How are you? hi how are you i'm doing very well that's an old movie joke sorry about that it's friday uh what do you and i disagree it's okay, about today? no
14: worries it's, <laughs> yeah evil eager yeah no problem um i think that before we have uh any forensic evidence uh for the north stream we're just pushing conspiracy theories back and forth that's my disagreement with you because um there are other theories also as valid as yours.
0: Which one? Because I think the U.S. is the U.S. and Poland are the best suspects in the bl- explosion that that tore apart the Nord Stream One and Two pipelines. Okay. Why shouldn't I okay, believe
14: it? Uh, Russia accrued thirty billion plus in fines before that happened. So that's the only way for them to get out of that. Then there is a, a work by a security analyst from Norway. His name is Troming, You can look it up. And I- right now, U.S. Navy is processing the uh, acoustic signatures from the data that we got from Danish and Swedish guys, the water
0: boys and stuff. Back in a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about Joe Biden. And boy, is he interesting these days. And more of your phone calls and emails. That's next. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers?
1: Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all the capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at equity Advantage.
2: Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com. View the videos and then let the 1031 Exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity
3: Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com.